You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Well, the cross is something we see every day. We see it on buildings, on jewelry, on tattoos and clothing, on album covers and artwork. The cross is everywhere. But why? What meaning does it have in our society? Well, the cross often represents Christianity. It's been the primary symbol of our faith for 1,500 years. But many people today display crosses not because they profess Christ, but as a meaningless fashion accessory. Or worse, we see entertainers posing in a cruciform way, blasphemously claiming the cross as a part of their secular entertainment, hoping to provoke shock value among the faithful. So the cross is a common shape in our culture, and yet it can mean a variety of things. In the same way, the cross was a common shape to the cultures of the Mediterranean world 2,000 years ago. Back then, people also would see crosses with great regularity. As they traveled, they would see them alongside roadways or outside cities. What did these crosses mean to them? Well, unlike today, back then the cross did not have a variety of meanings. Back then, everybody who saw the cross understood it in the same way. Because when they saw a cross, they usually saw on it a person hanging, naked, in agony, dying the most painful and humiliating death imaginable. And when they saw that brutal spectacle, they were reminded of the fact that they lived under the domination of Rome. And that opposing Rome meant that the cross would be your fate. To them, the cross signaled terror and subjugation. The cross was the worst fate imaginable in that day. In fact, so terrible was the cross in the minds of ancient people, it was considered off-limits for public discussion. Cicero said, The very mention of the cross should be far removed from a Roman citizen's body, mind, ears, and eyes. In our crass culture today, we don't have many off-limit topics like that. Now, the best modern equivalent I can think of would be like discussing the graphic details of the horror known as partial birth abortion. That would be viewed as rather repulsive and obscene in polite company today. And that same kind of disgust is how ancient people would have regarded the cross 2,000 years ago. Because the cross was the horror of horrors. And it was to this awful fate that Jesus, the Son of God, voluntarily subjected himself to fulfill the eternal plan of the Trinity. To reconcile ruined sinners like you and me to God. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel. As we come to the death of Jesus in Matthew chapter 27, verses 26 through 50. And in this most important passage today, we're going to see Jesus undergoing three sets of torments. First, we'll see that Jesus is mocked and brutalized by Roman soldiers. Second, we'll see that Jesus is mocked and tortured on the cross. 
And third, we'll see that Jesus bears the very wrath of the Father. We begin with our first point. Jesus is mocked and brutalized by Roman soldiers. As we begin today, Jesus has just been sentenced to death. And he's been sentenced because of the wicked schemes of the Sanhedrin, that supreme body within Judaism that has persecuted Jesus over his final week. He's sentenced because of the fickle mob, which had been manipulated by the Sanhedrin into demanding Jesus' death. And he's been sentenced because of the cowardice of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who refused to release Jesus, even though he knew he was innocent. But ultimately, Jesus goes to his death because that was God's eternal plan. Peter said on Pentecost in Acts 2, Jesus, whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And now that plan comes to pass, beginning in Matthew 27 and verse 26. Then he, that is Pilate, released for them, for the mob, Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. You might remember last week, Pilate empowered the mob to choose a prisoner who would be released to them. And he had hoped they would choose Jesus, but they instead choose Barabbas, who is a murderer and a revolutionary. And now Pilate grants the mob its demands. And in so doing, he shows himself to be an unjust judge as a guilty murderer is released back into the public and innocent Jesus is condemned. And Pilate turns Jesus over to his soldiers to be scourged. Now what does that mean? Matthew doesn't elaborate here, and neither do the other gospel writers. And this is something I want you to notice today. Since the Middle Ages, Christian art has tended to vividly depict the violence that was done upon Jesus. And we still see this kind of thing in our own day, right? In, in 2004, the film The Passion of the Christ displayed in extreme detail the violence of Jesus' scourging and crucifixion. But this idea of graphically depicting the violence done to Jesus was not the emphasis of the gospel writers. Instead, we're going to see today Matthew's much more interested in explaining the meaning and the context of Jesus' death than he is in graphically depicting the carnage of the cross. And so Matthew describes Jesus being scourged here with just one word. Just as in verse 35, he will describe Jesus being crucified again with just one word. And this minimalist approach is found in the other Gospels too. Now a big part of the reason for this is, as we just said, ancient people did not talk about crucifixion in detail. And for the original readers of the Gospels, graphic depictions of the cross were not necessary because everybody back then understood what crucifixion meant. They all saw it regularly. They didn't need to be told what the agonies of the cross were. They had seen it for themselves. But what was true in the ancient world is not true for us. 2,000 years ago, everybody understood crucifixion. We today may not. And so I do think for us to really understand our passage, it is necessary to spell out some of what the gospel writers chose not to describe. So what then is scourging? Well, the term means torture by whipping, and the Romans had three forms of such torture. The first type was used to punish troublemakers, and it involved a severe beating. The second type was much more violent and could result in crippling injuries. But the third type of whipping, called verberatio, was the worst. It was reserved for the worst criminals 
including those who were going to be crucified. And as Jesus now stands condemned, almost certainly he is subjected to this third and most awful type of whipping. And here's what would have happened. Jesus would have been stripped naked and tied to a post. And several soldiers would have begun to beat him with whips that were made of many leather strands. And at the end of each strand would be embedded a a fragment of bone or metal or glass. And as they whipped Jesus, these sharp edges would have torn at Jesus' flesh, gashing him open, leaving him in anguish, exposing bone and organ. Blood would have been everywhere. But even though verberatio was supposed to be the warm-up to crucifixion, many who were scourged in this way did not survive this initial torture. That's how brutal this was. But Jesus did survive, and so now he's subjected to more cruelty. Look at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Now, this term battalion refers to a military unit of about 600 people. It's a really big group, and they are bored, and they are looking for entertainment. Now, Roman soldiers were the most efficient, hardened professional killers in history. These are cruel men bent towards violence, And now they're going to amuse themselves with Jesus. Look at verse 28. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. These soldiers have heard that Jesus claims to be a king, and so they mock him along those lines. In the ancient world, kings wore purple robes. Uh, because purple dye was hard to come by and it was expensive. Now, the soldiers don't have a purple robe, but they do have a military-issue cloak, which is what the term used here means, which would have been a deep red color, almost purplish, good enough for the soldiers' purposes. And so they strip Jesus and they press this coarse fabric onto Jesus' torn flesh. And after giving him this mocking robe, they make for him a mocking crown, twisting together thorned bushes from a plant and pressing it into Jesus' brow. And they thrust a mocking scepter into his hand, and they have a good laugh at Jesus. They bow down before him and say, Hail! That's what they would have said if they had seen Caesar. Hail, King of the Jews! And after they got bored with this, they resumed their violence. Verse 30, And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. More contempt, more brutality. And once more, we see the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Jesus experiences this awfulness, and yet he continues entrusting himself to the Father, to him who judges justly. And so he does not retaliate. He does not call for 12 legions of angels to avenge him. He does not speak a word and disintegrate his tormentors. He endures their violence. And in so doing, he again embodies his own teaching from chapter 5. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Friends, here we see the self-control of Jesus. 
Here we see his obedience and submission to the Father. This is an awesome display of restraint on his part. And friends, in this awful moment, I would say that we even see that Jesus is still in control. And he displays his sovereignty by refraining from using the supernatural powers that we know he has from the rest of this book. And yet, while we should be in awe of Jesus here, at the same time, this scene should disgust us because there is so much cruelty and evil on display. And it may cause us to say, where is God when his son was being treated like this? We can look at this scene and mistakenly believe that somehow evil has supplanted God. But friends, God is in control. Because to paraphrase Genesis 50, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And even in the awfulness of this scene, God is at work. And I think we begin to see that more closely as we look at the mockery of the soldiers. They scorn Jesus with this kingly display while not realizing that in truth Jesus is king. We saw that back in the earliest part of this book. When the Magi came to Jerusalem, they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Jesus is the king of the Jews. These soldiers speak better than they know. And that is a major theme of the gospel writers as they talk about Jesus' passion. The mockers and schemers think they're in control. But the words they speak show that, in fact, God is working out his good purposes through their evil. We saw this once before when we talked about the wicked high priest Caiaphas, who, while he was scheming the death of Jesus in John 11, inadvertently spoke a prophecy about God's good intention to bring about salvation through Jesus' death. He spoke better than he knew. And in the same way now, these words intended for evil actually testify to the truth. Because Jesus is the Messiah. He is the long-promised King of Israel. And these mockers who bend the knee before Jesus unwittingly anticipate what will happen on the last day. When, as Philippians 2 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, evil, even in the midst of the evil of this scene, God reigns. But we come now to our second point, as Jesus is mocked and tortured on the cross. Verse 31. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Jesus begins the long march to the place of execution. And this would be another spectacle that the first readers of Matthew's gospel would be familiar with. They would have seen this many times. A condemned man carrying his cross through the streets, being whipped by soldiers and scorned by onlookers. And thinking about this long and awful march gives us some context to one of the most important things Jesus has said in this book. Because twice in Matthew, Jesus describes discipleship as taking our cross and following him. Christian life is not a guarantee of easiness and pleasantness and prosperity. Jesus promises his disciples will encounter very hard things as we live this life. Just as those who carried their crosses were scorned and abused. Believing friends, we will be too as we follow Jesus. Jesus has warned in this book, others will revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He's warned that we may lose every luxury and comfort in this life. Family members may turn against us. The state may want to kill us. But in all that we suffer for his sake, we need to remember that in the end, 
We are merely following the footsteps of our Savior, who was persecuted, who was brutalized, and who literally took up his cross and made this painful march. Now, history tells us the Romans usually stuck the vertical pole of the cross in the ground at the execution site before the prisoners got there. And so the prisoners would walk through the streets carrying the horizontal crossbeam on their backs. And this also would cause further pain, as the rough, unfinished wood of the crossbeam would scrape across their backs, which had just been opened by the scourging. And as Jesus made this walk, it seems like he was able to carry the crossbeam part of the way, but at some point he became unable to continue. He would have already lost a lot of blood and been in terrible pain. And so being unable to continue, the Romans force an onlooker to assume the burden of Jesus' cross. Verse 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. Cyrene is in what today would be eastern Libya, and there were many uh, Jews in that part of the world at that time. And so Simon is probably a pilgrim who has come here for the Passover. But now he is drawn into this horrific scene. And it apparently left quite the impression. Because in Mark's gospel, a comment is made about his sons, which suggests that they became Christians who were well known to the early church. And so I want you to see, even in the midst of this awful scene, God is still at work bringing people unto himself. But Simon carries Jesus' cross, allowing Jesus to complete his march. Verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now today we don't know exactly where Golgotha was. Hebrews 13 tells us it was outside the wall of the old city of Jerusalem. John reports it was near a garden. Uh, we'll see in a moment there were passers-by, which suggests it was beside a road. But beyond that, we're left to speculate. Neither do we know why it was called the place of the skull. Perhaps it had to do with the executions that happened there. Perhaps it related to some geographic feature of that location. Again, we cannot know. But as Jesus arrives at Golgotha, he is offered a drink. Mark tells us it was wine mixed with myrrh. Over the years, I've heard people teach that this drink was a kindness offered to those who were about to be crucified, that it would dull their senses. But myrrh doesn't actually mask pain. No, I think Matthew reveals the true meaning of this drink as he describes it as wine mixed with gall, with something that is awful and bitter and disgusting. This is yet another torture. After all of the exhaustion and brutality and suffering, here at the end, Jesus is offered a drink, and it is a drink that tastes disgusting. And in this, the words of Psalm 69 are fulfilled. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. But Jesus refuses this cup of scorn as he now prepares to drink the cup of suffering, which is his destiny. Verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Now Jesus is crucified. Now because ancient writers avoided describing crucifixion, we actually don't know a lot about how crucifixion was practiced in the ancient world. 
But from what we do know, it seems that most crucified people were tied to their crosses. However, archaeology confirms that sometimes when the Romans were feeling particularly vicious, they would nail their victims to the cross. And John's account of this, as well as some statements in the book of Colossians, indicate that Jesus was nailed to his cross. Most likely they would have nailed his hands to the crossbeam and then lifted it high into the air and affixed it to the vertical pole standing out of the ground. And then Jesus' feet would be affixed, either by tying or by nailing. Scriptures don't tell us. Although the bones of some people who were nailed to a cross have been found, and they were ankle bones, which would suggest that his ankles would have been driven into either side of the vertical pole by nails. And then Jesus was left to hang there. Now, crucifixion is an agonizing way to die. It involved being stretched out unnaturally on the cross. I think Psalm 22 alludes to this when it talks about his bones being out of joint. And this would increasingly strain the muscles as the hours went by. And this stretched out position would make breathing very difficult. Each time that Jesus would want to inhale, he would have to shift his position. He would have to put his entire weight on his nailed hands and pull his weight upwards, dragging his open back against the rough cross until he was able to get up to get one breath, and then he would slump back into his original position, increasingly in pain, increasingly exhausted, and deprived of air. And he did this again and again and again for six hours. And as Jesus experienced the pain of this torment, which gives us the English word excruciating, which means from the cross, the soldiers who crucified him now go about their business. They set up a watch to make sure nobody's going to come and bring Jesus down from the cross to rescue him. And they do a little gambling. Crucifixion wasn't just about inflicting pain, it was also about degradation and dehumanizing its victims. And so crucifixion victims were displayed naked. And that meant that the Roman soldiers who killed them got a perk. They got to profit from the death by taking the clothing. Now John's Gospel tells us that Jesus' clothing was divided into four equal parts between the four soldiers who kept watch. But Jesus had one piece of clothing that could not be evenly distributed a seamless tunic. And John says to see who would get that, the soldiers cast lots, which is like throwing dice. And in this, the scriptures were fulfilled. For a thousand years earlier, in Psalm 22, verse 18, it said, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. More than that, in this wretched scene, I want you to see that the word of Jesus himself was fulfilled. Because Jesus had repeatedly prophesied his death before the Passover. And he said in chapter 20, verse 18, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And friends, now nearly every part of that prophecy has come true. Jesus has been betrayed into the hands of the Sanhedrin. They did condemn him to death. They did turn him over to the Romans. And now he has been mocked and flogged and crucified. Now only his resurrection remains. But I want you to see that even in his humiliation, we see in this fulfillment that Jesus is Lord. His word has come true. He is sovereign even in this moment when he seems most powerless. 
And we continue to see that as the passage goes on. Look at verse 37. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, when the Romans crucified someone, they would often display the charge for which the person was condemned to deter similar offenses in the future. John tells us that Pilate wrote the charge displayed over Jesus' cross, and on it he named Jesus as King of the Jews. Not because Pilate was a believer, but because he knew it would offend the Sanhedrin. And it did. In John 19, they demand Pilate change the charge to say, This man said, I am king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. But again, what Pilate meant to insult the Sanhedrin again testifies to the truth. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. And more than that, he is the son of man who will receive an unending global kingdom from his father. He is not just king of Israel. He is king of all. He is Lord. But the Lord of glory now dies as a criminal. Look at verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on the right and one on the left. We've seen this term robber before. It was used to describe Barabbas earlier in the chapter. It means something like a revolutionary. And so Jesus is executed in the midst of two revolutionaries, probably some of Barabbas' men. As Isaiah 53 prophesied, he was numbered with the transgressors. And yet even here, we still see that God is in control. Because Matthew specifies here that the two criminals were situated, one on his right and one on his left. Now, we've seen this phrase before in a different context, back in chapter 20. When Jesus was approached by James and John, who said to him, if they might, who asked if they might sit, one at his right hand and one at his left, in his kingdom. And Jesus responded, to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And now by using this same language, it seems that Matthew is telling us who it is that was destined to be positioned at Jesus' right and left. Not two disciples, but these two criminals. And yet if they are these ones that Jesus had designated to be at Jesus' right and left, then that means that in this cross... In the humiliation and suffering, somehow Jesus is in the act of winning his kingdom. And this is one reason that the early church professed Christ reigns from the cross. And so while to everybody there it looked like Jesus was weak and powerless, he was in fact winning the victory. But now the mockery begins again. Look at verse 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. The first mocking comes from passers-by, those on the roadways. And as they saw Jesus, they made the mistake Isaiah said people would make when they saw the suffering servant. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. They thought that Jesus had displeased God, and that's why he was there. And so they felt justified in verbally abusing him, in making gestures of disrespect, fulfilling Psalm 22:7. All who see me mock me, they wag their heads. And as they mock Jesus, what do they say? You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Now these words relate to the charge that emerged at Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. When the only thing the false witnesses could agree about was that Jesus had once said something about destroying the temple. In actuality, what Jesus said was this in John 2.19. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John says he was talking about his own body. See friends, Jesus has become the new temple. 
In the Old Testament, people met with God in a building. Now we meet with God only in the person of Jesus. But the word on the street is that Jesus is on this cross because he said he was going to destroy the temple building. And so the passers-by mock him, unaware that at that moment, they who are participating in and agreeing with the death of Jesus are actually guilty of what they're accusing Jesus of. Because they are the ones who are now destroying the true temple of God by crucifying God's Son. And yet by so doing, they are creating the situation that will allow Jesus to perform the miracle he said he would perform in John 2. That he would raise his body on the third day. But these scoffers have no idea about that, and so they mock Jesus. But more than that, they tempt him. Look what else they say to him in verse 40. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you are the Son of God, we've heard that before. In chapter 4, Satan tempts Jesus using this same language. The voice of Satan now comes out through the mouths of the mockers, urging Jesus to abandon his mission, to reject the Father's will, and save himself. We find a similar temptation in the second mocking, recorded in verses 41 to 43. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Not content with having set Jesus' death up, some members of the Sanhedrin hate him so much that they have come to actually watch him die. And as he does, they stand before him gloating and speak loudly in his earshot. And look what they say. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe. This is what Satan had offered him in chapter 4. A crown without a cross. But Jesus won't give in. He prayed in the garden, your will be done. And he obediently carries out the Father's will to the end. But notice what else the mockers say here. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. You know, throughout this book, we've seen Jesus' miracles, how he healed the sick and raised the dead and, and exorcised demons. But now these mockers cast aspersions on Jesus' miracles as they say, well, Jesus seems powerless to save himself. And yet, in the words they say, they speak better than they know. Because why had Jesus come into the world? Matthew 121 says, you the angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus came into the world to save other people, not just from illness or spiritual oppression. Ultimately, Jesus came to deliver people from sin, from its power and its penalty. And to achieve that, Jesus had to die. He says in Matthew 20, verse 28, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. Jesus' life is the payment that was necessary to buy us out of bondage to sin. Or Matthew 26, 28, He says, This is my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For us to be forgiven, Jesus' blood had to be poured out. And so the only way that Jesus could save others was not to save himself. If Jesus had saved himself, if he had not given his life as a ransom for us, if he had not allowed his blood to be shed, we could not be saved. The only way Jesus can save us is he must die. But they continue to mock him. They say, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him. That's straight out of Psalm 22.7, a thousand years earlier. And finally, they utter one last mockery and temptation based on the fact that Jesus 
said that he was God's son. As they suggest that God has disowned him, that God wants no part of him. Because if God really cared about Jesus, would he let Jesus suffer on the cross so? It's a temptation to Jesus to despair, to abandon his faith. But he doesn't. And friends, very soon God was going to make clear that he loved Jesus, that he approved of Jesus, when he raised Jesus victoriously from the dead. But in that moment, when things seemed so bleak, Jesus' enemies cackled with glee and blasphemed him in these ways. And if that wasn't bad enough, look at verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Even the criminals there mock Jesus. Now Luke tells us at one point, one of these criminals repents. Luke 23, 42, and he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. But what do we see in this section? Jesus endures the very worst that man can do. All of the pain and humiliation and scorn and ultimately death. But while Jesus appears to be defeated here, I hope we see that God is still in control. God is still accomplishing his good purposes. And we see that most clearly in the great theme of Matthew's gospel, which is that Jesus fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And as we see the connections between Jesus' suffering and the scripture, we realize that God is sovereign even over this dark moment. That even through Jesus' agony and death, his good purposes are coming to pass. And I think that should encourage us in every dark moment we experience in this life and every bit of suffering that we experience, that God is still on his throne and he is at work achieving his purposes in this world. But while Jesus faces the horrors of the cross, he now faces one final torment, a fate worse than death. And this is our final point. Jesus bears the wrath of the Father for our sin. Mark says by this point, Jesus had been on the cross for three hours and yet his agony is only now beginning. Look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. As the final hours of Jesus' life begin, supernatural things begin to take place. And an eerie darkness descends on the land. Many natural explanations have been offered for this, about storm clouds or sandstorms or an eclipse. But I think it's best if we see this as a unique, supernatural phenomenon that signals a new phase of Jesus' suffering. Back in chapter 24, Jesus said the sun will be darkened as a sign of the end. And that seemed to anticipate a literal supernatural fulfillment. In the same way, the Old Testament sometimes speaks about a supernatural darkness that occurs on the earth when God judges sin. Think of the Exodus. There was a plague of darkness. Or in Amos 8, verse 9, God talks about judging sin like this. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And in this way, the skies now turn dark, signaling that the Father is performing an act of fierce judgment upon sin. But what is the judgment? Will God now avenge Jesus and strike down his enemies? No. Instead, the judgment of the Father falls not on Jesus' enemies, but on Jesus himself. And it was this horror that gave Jesus pause in the garden. This is what made him say, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. This is what caused him to pray, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This is what caused him such agony that his sweat became like great drops of blood. As he now experiences the judgment of the father. And as he does, he cries out from the cross. 
Now, the other Gospels tell us Jesus said a number of things from the cross. But in Matthew, we have only one saying recorded, and it's this one in verse 46. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's recorded here. This is the, the first verse of Psalm 22, and it's recorded here for us in a mix of Hebrew and Aramaic. And Matthew records the original language here because it explains some confusion that we're going to see in verse 47. But Matthew tells us also what Jesus' words mean. This is a real and anguished cry that reflects invisible things transpiring at that moment between the Father and the Son. This verb forsaken means something like desert or abandon. And up to this point, we have seen the crowds desert Jesus. We have seen the disciples desert Jesus. And now, in some way that we cannot fully understand, it seems that even the Father deserts Jesus. Why? What's going on here? I think the rest of the New Testament gives us some insight about what is happening in this moment. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this moment, Jesus, the sinless Son of God, takes the full measure of sin upon himself to the point that Paul says he actually became sin. And upon Jesus was imputed all of the guilt for all those who would believe. And as that takes place, the Father's wrath falls upon him. The very curse that Jesus will one day pronounce upon the lost, according to Matthew 25, now falls on him. For Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The Father cursed the Son and poured His wrath on Him. As Isaiah 53 prophesied, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And as the Father judges Jesus for our sin, the Holy One of Israel, who is holy, 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 whose eyes are too pure to behold evil, turns away from his own Son, that twice in this book he had publicly acclaimed he was well pleased with. And friends, whatever this entailed within the Godhead, I don't think it's possible for us to fully grasp this. The terribleness of this situation leads Jesus to cry out, Psalm 22, verse 1, in agony. And yet, as we look at these words, we must not fall into the trap many interpreters have fallen into here. They say, well, Jesus in this final moment recognizes that God has, a, has deserted him and he dies in unbelief, being disillusioned. Friends, that is a lie. As Jesus cries out here in forsakenness, he does not cry out as one who has no hope. For Psalm 22 contains a promise. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Yes, in one sense, Jesus is forsaken, and yet in another, Jesus has full confidence in the Father's plan and believes that the Father will ultimately vindicate him. As Hebrews 12 says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Even in this worst moment, Jesus had great Father in his faith. He knew there was joy set before him that his victory would bring 
many sons to glory. And so he persevered. But the witnesses to this scene don't understand what's taking place. As they hear Jesus say the word Ailey, my God, they think he's calling for the prophet Elijah. Centuries earlier, Elijah had been taken into heaven while still living. And as best as they can understand, these bystanders think that Jesus is trying to summon Elijah to come bring him off the cross. One final time in this book, Jesus speaks and nobody has any clue what he's talking about. And that explains what we see in verses 47 to 49. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Once more, Psalm 69 is fulfilled as Jesus is given sour wine to drink. But these people wait to see if something surprising will happen, if Elijah will arrive. And indeed, they are surprised by what happens next. But it's not Elijah. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And John tells us at this moment, Jesus declared, It is finished. Jesus has triumphantly accomplished the mission that was given to him. He has made full atonement for sin. And with that, Jesus died. But notice that we're not just told Jesus died. We're told that he yielded up his spirit. Even in this moment of his death, Jesus has total control. Just as he said back in John chapter 10, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And with that, Jesus died, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, Jesus' death happened rather abruptly. It seemed like it happened in a way that nobody there would have expected to happen in that way and in that time. And so to make sure that Jesus was really dead, one of the Roman soldiers took his spear and stabbed Jesus in the heart with it. And by so doing, he indeed verified that Jesus was dead. And with that, it may seem that we come to the end of Jesus' story. But praise God, we don't. Because we're going to see over the next few weeks, God the Father publicly affirms Jesus by raising him from the dead. This is not the end of the story, but it is the culmination of Jesus' mission. He has accomplished the purpose for which he was sent into this world. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Friends, this is the one and only way that you and I can be reconciled to God. Because as Isaiah says, we each and all are sinners. Sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. We have done what God has forbidden. And we have each failed to do what God has commanded. And as a result, we're guilty. We're guilty of treason in God's universe. And we deserve the severest penalty for that. The penalty that Jesus experienced on the cross. Mockery, anguish, death, and even God's very wrath. Friends, this is what we deserved. We deserve to be mocked. For Psalm 2 says that, for sinners like us who rebel against God, the Lord laughs and holds them in derision. We deserve pain. For Psalm 107 speaks of suffering, affliction, as a just punishment for our sinful ways. We deserve death. For Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And we deserve to suffer in hell forever. For Matthew 25 tells us the ultimate destiny of the lost is to enter the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And yet, friends, what we deserved, Jesus took on himself. As the song says, Jesus paid it all. 
He took all the mockery, all the humiliation, all the anguish. He died the death that we owe. He was cursed for us so that we might never have to experience this terrible fate. In fact, not only does Jesus take the penalty that we owe, but 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he actually imputes his own perfect righteousness to everyone who is in him so that we can stand before God, that we can be declared righteous in his sight, not because we are righteous, but because we stand in the righteousness of Jesus. But friends, to accomplish all of this, to buy our pardon and bring us to God, Jesus had to die. Now, maybe this morning you're listening to this and you think, this is all nonsense. Somebody died 2,000 years ago. What does this have to do with me? There's nothing glorious about that. Friend, if that is you, you are trapped in the false wisdom of the world. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 tells us that the cross is contrary to the wisdom of the world. To the world, the cross is foolishness. If this is foolishness to you today, I want to say you are lost. But today, if you see this and you see there's something beautiful and glorious in it, that is because God is working in your life because the cross is the power of God unto salvation. So today, I, I simply want to leave you with this. How should we respond to the death of Jesus? The good news is Jesus tells us the answer. In Mark 1.15, he says, repent and believe the gospel. Friends, we need to know that we are sinners. As Jesus said earlier in this book, we are all on the broad road that leads to destruction. We begin mastered by the flesh, chasing what looks good and what feels good. Dancing to the, the tune of Satan as we believe the lies of the culture around us. Friends, we all begin on a road that ends with eternal catastrophe. But there is another path. We must turn off the road we've been on and turn instead to face Jesus and pursue him in faith. We need to believe that he is who he said he is, that he is truly God and truly man, that his death paid for our sins in full and that he rose again from the dead. And we need to entrust ourselves to him and follow him as our Savior and our Lord. Friends, that is the one and only path of salvation. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Maybe today you're like, oh, all religions are the same. They're not. This is it. The path of repentant faith in Christ alone is the only road that ends with salvation. And I warn you, if you will not repent and believe in Jesus, then everything Jesus suffered in this passage won't do you any good. Because you remain dead in your sins, enslaved, condemned, and on a collision course with God's eternal wrath. Friend, I plead with you today, turn to Jesus and live. But today, if you do know Jesus in a saving way, I want to leave you with three brief applications. First, I want to say to you, look at the cross rightly to understand God's love. We live in an age when everybody wants to talk about God's love. Pretending that God's love means he's going to unconditionally affirm everything we do. Or that God's love is some hyper-sentimentalized romantic emotionalism. How many worship songs basically treat Jesus as our boyfriend? Friends, that is not how we should think about God's love. If we want to understand God's love rightly, look to the cross. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
Maybe you hear these words and you say, well, God loves the world so much. That's what this is saying. That's not what it means when it says God so loved the world. No, John 3.16 means God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son. The death of Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's love. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10 says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So today, if you really want to know how much God loves you, look at the cross. See what the Father gave because he loved you. See what Jesus endured because he loved you. And yet in the same way, friends, the, tru- the cross is also the truest expression of God's wrath against sin. If you want to see how bad your sin really is, if you want to see it as God sees it, see what it really deserves, look at the cross. Look at all that Jesus bore to set us free. And so as we look at the cross, may we see the, the great love God has for us, and may we see how loathsome and wretched our sin is. May this realization drive us to forsake it, But finally, friends, as we look at the cross, I want to remind us of what Jesus said back in chapter 20. The last will be first and the first last. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And in our passage, do we not see Jesus as this ultimate example of true greatness through service? He was the first who became last. The king of glory became the suffering servant. And as a result, he has become first again. He is exalted over all creation. And as we reflect upon Jesus' greatness in this way, the scriptures likewise call us to renounce our pride, to refuse to assert ourselves and our rights, and to instead humble ourselves and show sacrificial love for one another, as Jesus has shown for us. We end with the words of Philippians 2. I want you to listen to this. The application that Paul draws from the cross of Christ and also how he glories in it. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.